All right, welcome everyone to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. On this show, I interviewed Wendy Friesen. Uh, Wendy's a really interesting woman. She's been a hypnotherapist and NLP expert for 25 years. She is a worldwide leader in creating rapid change for life's difficult problems. Since, 90, since 1994, her hypnotherapy expertise at wendy.com has massively influenced the lives of millions worldwide and brought insight, wisdom, and spiritual growth to people in need. She's often been described by colleagues as a powerful healer, teacher, and a creative marketing expert. Wendy's been on numerous TV shows and magazines, Coast to Coast radio show, Fox and Friends News, Queen Latifah TV show, GQ magazine, Men's Health magazine, along with the Washington Post, just to name a few. And has also crossed the Atlantic in a sailboat that she bought. I want to hear about that. Maybe we could just start off right there. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Wendy. Thank you. I just gave my camera a little swipe there. Um, yeah, so the sailboat thing, it was just such a dream of mine to buy a sailboat and go across the Atlantic. And I wrote a book every day. I wrote a chapter of the book because it took, it was in Europe the, when I bought it. So I had a crew of three people that I had hired and we interviewed on Skype and everything. So they seemed like nice enough people. The one guy was from Australia and the other two were Dutch. And I was going to spend then three weeks with them <laughs> on a boat that got smaller every day. <laughs> um, it's with a group called the Ark. And the Ark is a rally of 250 sailboats. And they leave every year. Um, mid-November after the hurricane season and it's kind of a race but you don't really have to race and it was a phenomenal experience there were times where I was just looking at the sky in the middle of the night and the stars and the dolphins that were swimming with me and the smooth water and the days where we had no wind and we just sat there and then the last six days was the worst squalls and storms they've ever had on this ARC rally. It was phenomenal. And there were many times when I thought I was going to die. It was really scary. The waves were like about 18 feet high and they were from behind wow. us. So it would push the boat up and then the boat would surf down the face of the wave. And oh boy. And that went on for six days and it just didn't stop. <laughs> oh. Wow. Good book. <laughs> yeah, I could imagine. Ooh. How long did the, the trip take in total? It took um, 22 days, which is a little longer than most of the rallies because we had no wind for like almost a week in the beginning. So, yeah. And then I, when I was in the middle of the Atlantic, I would at, the, at dinner, we had one bottle of wine to share with the four of us. And so I would put a note in it with my email address and phone number and say, Hey, I'm in the middle of the Atlantic and whatever. <laughs> so a fisherman in Florida called me on the phone. He said, I'm about 20 miles offshore and I just saw something there in the water and there were some fish jumping around it. And I picked it up and it's your message in a bottle. <laughs> <laughs> and it was so cool. The next one was found on a deserted Island in the Bahamas. And the next one was found in Turks and Caicos. There's others floating around out there still. <laughs> huh. That is wild. That's <laughs> that's an it sounds like an incredible adventure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, let's let's talk about 
um, you know, how you kind of got started. I'm curious how, what sort of piqued your interest in hypnosis or uh, you mentioned uh, neuro-linguistic programming. I'm curious, how did you, how did you get into that whole realm? Well, I was a tanning salon owner <laughs> doing my best to keep people tanned. And my store was closing down because my lease was up and it was kind of the end of the tanning, um, you know, love that people had. So I closed the store and I had no idea what to do. And on one of the last days in my store, I opened the Sacramento Bee, the newspaper, and I was looking in the classifieds just because I was bored for a little while. And I saw an ad for a hypnotherapy school and I didn't know anything about it, but I thought I would call them and see. And they said, it starts today. <laughs> it's six months long and it's four days a week. And I went there and it was fascinating. Even just the first few days, the very basics, I was so fascinated. And so I stayed and partway through, I started seeing some clients um, and I just did it kind of for practice. And then I opened an office and started doing it full time. It was a challenge at first getting clients but what I did, I was so broke and things were just so difficult. And I was a single mom with two little kids. But what I did is I used my hypnosis on myself to get rid of my self-sabotage and my beliefs about wealth or unworthiness or fear of making money. And then took myself into the future, one year into the future. And at that one year in the future, I, I didn't know what I was going to see, but all of a sudden I noticed there are all these people that were so grateful for the work I was doing. And they were just, just hundreds of them, just so grateful. And then I had written a book apparently and everybody was buying the book and I was making really good money. So after those sessions, then I wrote down on a post-it note that by this time, one year later, I will make $1 million or more. And at the end of that year, I had made from my business $1,012,000, starting with nothing, feeling pitiful and worthless and hopeless in how I could possibly even make enough to support myself at that time. So this is one of my favorite topics. I've helped so many people with the abundance topic and finding their self-sabotage and their negative beliefs and everything. And it's, it's miraculous that you can do that and then create it and have it happen just almost exactly like I saw in my future. Right. So what I'm curious then, what are some of the most common, you know, uh, limiting beliefs that are sort of preventing people from getting what, you know, what they want? Yeah. A lot of people feel that if a person has wealth, that they're greedy or they did something not very good or kind to get it, something underhanded, um, that they didn't deserve it. And having those beliefs about other people having money really holds you back. So there's an experiment that I do when I do the financial abundance workshop in person. So I might have like 150 people in the audience and I'm on stage and I have a flip chart, a paper flip chart. And on the second page of it, I've taped a whole bunch of money. And there's probably 200 or $300 in ones and fives and tens. And then before I start, there's a plain piece of paper that's on the flip chart. So as soon as I get on stage, I just pull that paper over. And in the top, in really big letters, it says free money. But I don't say anything about it. It's just sitting there right at the front of the stage. And I start doing my talk and la-di-da, this is what happened to me. And then you wait and 
no, maybe five or six minutes into it, one person gets up and takes one bill off of the paper and goes and sits down. So I keep talking like I didn't notice. A couple minutes more, another person gets up and takes a bill down. And then another minute or so, when the third person, and I've done this many times, same results almost universally. When the third person stands up, it somehow tells the group that, oh, it's okay to do this, right? And everybody gets up. And so the third person goes up there and grabs a bill, and now everybody else is grabbing some money. The point of this is now I ask the people, why didn't you get up? It says free money. Why didn't you go get up and get that money? And some say, I don't deserve it. It's not mine. I said, but it says free money. And then I'd, I'd say, well, why didn't you get up after the first person took some money? And they said, well, it seemed like it wasn't really there for me. Or then when people took a lot of the money and all of it was gone, the people who didn't get any, why didn't you get any? They said, well, it's not fair that I didn't get any. That should have been for everybody. And their beliefs come up with all of their emotional stuff about what happened with this money. One woman put the money back on the paper, taped it back up. And they said, why'd you do that? She says, because I didn't earn it. Hmm. So it's pretty fascinating, the different things that, that they find that they believe about money and that, oh, in England, <laughs> nobody would get up and take them any money. And like 20 minutes went by and I, I said, okay, okay, <clears throat> I've never seen this happen. Usually <laughs> within 10 minutes, you know, the money's gone. Why didn't you take it? And it turns out that British people are really afraid of embarrassing themselves. So they will not do something that could possibly embarrass themselves. So we discussed that, and then a man got up from the back of the room, came all the way up, tore the entire paper off, folded it up, and took it to his seat. So now people were mad. They said, he can't do that. He can't have all of it. He said, why not? Because it's not supposed to be his. It's for all of us. And so then another conversation about how greedy he is or how unfair it is. So... I'm curious, like, where are these beliefs coming from? Is it, you know, the way people grew up, society? It sounds like even, you know, cultural, as far as certain countries instilling, you know, these these certain beliefs that it's not okay to, or, or a fear of embarrassment, rather. Yeah, I think we get a lot of it from our parents. I know my father was an entrepreneur, and when I was a when I was young, all five of the kids had to work in his little glass blowing industry that he was creating. But there was a lot of cash because in the beginning he sold all these glass things we made at the fairs. And so it was almost all cash. And then it was in malls, in a booth, big booth in the malls, but it was so much cash. And so I grew up just seeing so much cash all the time. And it was odd that it was kind of desensitized to it. But at the same time, it was, he did this with nothing. He didn't have anything and he created this business that makes a lot of money. So I have a belief that you can go and try and take a chance and just <laughs> power through the difficulties and that money comes to you, which has worked for me in some situations. But yeah, it's, it's hard to know. We get it from failures. If we have a business that fails and we decide, well, I'm just not smart enough to do that 
or I didn't realize that this employee was ripping me off, so that makes me the fool, or you have issues that are so connected with success and wealth from all these situations in your life. Right. So as a hypnotist, I'm curious, what are you doing, you know, as far as I've had, you know, a hypnotist previously on, a, on the show. So I have, you know, a certain understanding of it. Um, and my audience has a certain understanding of it as far as kind of her explanation was basically prompting people to, to change their own beliefs where it's not, you know, inducing people into this certain state and telling them you're going to believe this and believe that it's, it's more so kind of showing themselves, uh, helping them to, to see their own beliefs and then change them in sort of this altered state. Is that how you would explain it? Or is there a different way of thinking about it? Yeah, it's a it's a combination of several different processes, and I've done this with corporations, with realtors, with um, these guys who traded on the, it was the options floor back when they used to be in the pits in San Francisco, and they had to scream and yell, and they had issues with worthiness with money, but basically, with anybody I'm working with, first I want to find the positive intention for either screwing up or making dumb mistakes or feeling you're not worthy on some level. So when I did my parts therapy to find the positive intention when I was poor, I asked this part of me, and I felt like there's a part of me that wants me to fail. It's just, I'm, I've been so depressed and I feel so hopeless and I don't get any help and I'm trying to support my kids. So I felt that part in my stomach, which is where we store fear. And I closed my eyes and got relaxed. And I asked that part, what do you want? And remember, this is a positive intention (laughs) behind a negative behavior. And the part said, I need you to be pitiful. And I was stunned because that was not a belief I would have about myself. And I said, thank you. And I asked the part even deeper, what do you want? And the part said, I need you to be more pitiful. And that just shocked me because it didn't make any sense. I believed consciously that I did not have that kind of a program or belief running. And then I asked the part, why do you need me to be more pitiful? And the part said, because then somebody will rescue you. I was just amazed that this was in in my mind or in my soul or that there was a part of me that wanted to be rescued. So we would do that with a client, having them find out what the positive intention is and why it's there. And then once it's a known issue, now it's, it's not hidden and it's not running that program anymore. So now we ask the part what it needs to let go of that. And then we suggest that the worthiness or that you are, you know, whatever the issue is, you're smart enough, or in my case, you don't need to be rescued because you do deserve to make money and live an abundant life. And then going into the future, there's opportunities for a lot of changes in belief. So if I take someone a year into the future and have them look at themselves like disassociated, and they're looking at themselves and say, you know, that you're very successful now. You have been doing really well and you're grateful to be able to do that kind of work. And I say, what do you notice about him or her? And then they'll, they'll have some things that are new beliefs. So say, yeah, she's so confident and 
she just did this all by herself or he's really doing something that he loves finally and people really appreciate the work that he's doing. So they're building new beliefs in that person, in that future self. And then I have them step into that future self and feel what it's like to operate from these beliefs and the things you know about you that are true for you, the things that are so important for you. So we basically build those beliefs in that future person. And it sort of overwrites the old ones. Right. Okay. That makes sense. And now I want to, I want to focus on, you know, something that we talked a little about just before we started recording is, you know, the uh, substance abuse, you know, with alcohol and drug addiction, how, uh, how can hypnosis be helpful um, for people going through that? Yeah. Well, when I first started seeing a, my first client was a meth addict and uh, I thought I'm not qualified to do that because obviously there's these very expensive treatment centers that must know what they're doing. Um, my oldest son had gone to um, one and then two of them because he'd had a problem with alcohol, but then because he was in these treatment centers, he started doing heroin and he ended up going to five or six that were very expensive. And I thought, well, they know what they're doing. They must. But then I, I was doing hypnotherapy and I thought the things that they're doing are negative and create more fear and they create more doubt in the person. And um, it's mostly like the 12 step, you know, issue. And it's difficult because they're labeling them and telling them they're an addict forever they're an alcoholic forever for the rest of their life. They have a disease, they're powerless, and on and on, all those beliefs. And I think, as a hypnotherapist, I would never suggest to somebody that they're powerless or diseased for life, or that you have to label yourself for the rest of your life. Hi, I'm an alcoholic. Hi, I'm an addict. I would never. That would be so contrary to what we do. So I started working with addicts doing the opposite. We go into several points in their future. We do the parts therapy that I said to find the sabotage. We do a lot of work with forgiveness. But when they're in these future moments, the things they're hearing me say is, notice how long ago it was when you used to drink alcohol and all those things that happened are so far in the past now. And notice how it feels that it's been a year and you've had a life that you're proud of, and you love having people around, alcohol's not even a part of your life anymore. It's not even a thing. You haven't thought about it in months. And then I also am creating a, a trigger that, and of course, this is, it's a bigger process than just what I'm describing, but the short version of what it does for addicts is amazing. So I create the the qualities of being strong and all that that means for them when they're in the future and then being healthy and what that means and how it feels and being in control. So now these three things are the anchors and I continue to reinforce them with the freedom they have. And it's just so easy to have this freedom and you can be around people who drink. You don't care. It doesn't matter. And then when you see alcohol or you see other people drinking or you were to smell alcohol, instantly you will feel strong and healthy and in control and all that those words mean for you. So this turned into something that just 
made a phenomenal change in people. So <laughs> an example is one of my clients who he had quit drinking and he had been really bad with the alcohol was just horrible in his situation. But anyway, he had quit for a month. He was sitting at a bar drinking club soda at a conference and his friend came up to him who didn't know that he had quit drinking. And his friend bought him a glass of his favorite scotch and he waved it under his nose. And that is the olfactory memory thing is our yeah. most powerful one, right? When he smelled that, he told me that he said, it didn't do a thing to me except that I knew I was strong and healthy and in control. Those words were just right there and it had no effect on me. And then of course he didn't drink it. But the fact that we have that power to do that with addicts and alcoholics, pretty amazing. Absolutely. And I want to go back to something that you said earlier that I actually really uh, resonate with, you know, as far as the, the terminology of, of saying someone, you know, people, people announcing themselves as an alcoholic, as a, as a drug addict, to me, that feels like it, it is too much woven into their personal identity. Like that's, that's who I am. That's who I have been and who I always will be. Yeah. But the way I see it, it's like, okay, that's who you were, you know, but now you have, you know, these choices as far as who you want to be in the future. You don't, and, you know, kind of as you're saying, you're not necessarily stuck with something like this. Yeah. And also from the experience you have with the brain mapping and different, um, the neuropsychology maybe of what happens with addicts. Well, with any of us, if we have um, a really sad memory and there's something we see that triggers that sad memory, our brain then opens up other memories that match that emotion or that mm. feeling or even that physical sensation. So we're opening up unconsciously, not even on purpose, but we're opening up all these things that support that feeling. When, when we say that, you know, say I'm an alcoholic or I'm an addict and you go to 90 meetings in 90 days and say it and hear all these sad stories, you're reinforcing all of those mistakes you've made and the horrible things you've done to your family or your friends or all the times you have tried to quit and you failed and failed and failed and you know you can't do this, but you're continuing to trigger mm. all of those memories. And the success rate with AN 12-step is like 5 to 7%. In, oh, and I, if, if people listening, if you got clean or sober with AA, awesome. I congratulate you. But it is true that that's not how our brain works. And our, when that program was created in the 1930s, early 1930s, there was no brain science. There was no research about how our brains activate memories and emotions and triggers and the things that keep us failing or feeling bad or depressed. It didn't exist then. Mm -hmm. But now we know better. Right. Right. And it seems like the more we can understand about neuroscience and the more we, we understand about how the, the reward circuitry works, then the more things we can kind of do to, to try to break that, that loop, you know, when it kind of gets, gets out of control. It yeah. Yeah. There's a process I do. You may have heard of it. It's called a swish and it's an NLP process. And with an addict, it, it's really showing us how our brain works in the way it stores memories. So when we visualize something, feel it emotionally, we physically imagine the sensations, the sounds, the smells, everything. That memory is being stored in the brain 
as if it's a real memory. And this is a little fuzzy area, but um, the brain doesn't know the difference between a real and an imagined event. You do know the difference. You know, I just visualize that, but the brain stores it in the same way so it can get triggered as if it's a real memory. So in the swish process, you have a screen, like it's like your, your eyes are closed. You have a screen on the left and the screen on the right. And on the left, like for addiction, is all the messy mistakes, the horrible things, the people who hate you, all the stuff you hate about yourself and all that that you wrecked. And it's all on that screen on the left. And then the screen on the right, we create the things that they saw in their future self and the person that they love and how they can trust themselves and how they really like having honor and being a person that they're proud of when they look in the mirror and your family's there with you and you've got a great job and all that. Then there's a process of having the, the, the new memory that we're creating it expands and it covers the old one. So they're doing this with their eyes closed. It expands and covers that old one. And then we, re we reset it and have it do that many times. What's happening is that the place that those memories were stored in the old picture are being replaced by the memories of this new image. That's what we think. Because then anything that they see or hear or whatever, it's going to try to trigger the same type of memory that they used to have but something replaced it it's like mm -hmm. not just an overlay but the old one like sh continually shrinks down and the other one's expanding and seems to work hmm. that's a very interesting technique and you know just for our listeners i haven't talked too much about uh neurolinguistic programming on the show can you kind of just um give us uh, sort of a definition and and kind of how you weave that into hypnosis? Yeah, yeah. So you, you do a lot of NLP processes with eyes closed. You don't need to be in a deep trance. You just have to have your eyes closed and go with the process. Neurolinguistic programming means that our neurology is affected by our words, the linguistics, and that there's programming that is done to us all the time. But now we can look at something a little more scientifically to to find a way to change it. And the swish is a really nice example of that. There's one I do for people who have trouble with um, either like sugar addiction or they overeat or there's really bad foods that they just have to eat all the time. And in this process, there it's an NLP process. I'm asking them to imagine they ate that uh, fast food cheeseburger and then ask their brain to go to two hours after having eaten it. And I say, how do you feel? And I say, oh, tired and heavy. And oh, I, yeah, my brain, my head hurts. Okay, then we erase that out. We rinse that out and say, okay, now eat um, a salad with maybe some chicken in it and have them imagining eating it and then go to two hours after eating that. Now, how do you feel? And they say, wow, huh, I feel really clear headed and I feel alert. I feel good. I'm not hungry, but I, I just feel really good. So then I ask the brain to compare those two feelings and choose the one that feels the best. So we do that many times. And by doing it with all different kinds of foods, the brain is getting something that switches it to a different neural network that takes them to 
oh, this is the food I want. This is what makes me feel good. But we're asking the brain to do it unconsciously, automatically. So, right. that, like, well, that that actually brings up a, an interesting thing because that that there's a lot sort of related to addiction um, with what you just said, as far as like you know, with say eating junk food that sort of you know triggers the immediate you know release of the pleasurable chemicals, activates the reward circuitry in the brain, very similar to a lot of addictive drugs. So it's sort of like what you're saying is sort of um, in a way, sort of what how I think of it is using kind of the prefrontal cortex, the very human part of our brain to sort of think about um, or or maybe even just kind of embody the the feeling of what that's gonna create versus you know what say making a, a healthier choice is gonna create. So yeah, and it's a good way to understand NLP. It's it's always more of a process rather than um, being in trance with hypnotherapy, sometimes you're kind of free-floating into a situation. You're revivifying a, something in your past or you're creating, um, if they're getting over trauma and they're having to look at it and, and be involved in that or their inner child. But NLP is much more specific that way. So it's a more, I think there's a little more science behind NLP and the people who are in it right now who are creating and innovating in the NLP field is amazing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and ask you as far as, you know, I read on your, on your bio, as far as you have a lot of, uh, speaking, you've had a lot of speaking appearances, um, Fox and friends news, queen Latifah TV show, um, the man show. So I'm just curious, like, you know, do you incorporate any of these hypnosis techniques on yourself? say before you're you're getting ready to speak and I'm, I'm guessing the answer is yes <laughs> yeah you want to hear the fastest hypnosis i ever did on myself <laughs> yeah. oh my god so i was fairly new at hypnosis and i hadn't really done speaking uh, maybe a little tiny bit but i hadn't really been on stages and i had not been on tv my 12 year old nephew made me a one-page web page because you had to know how to code back then 1995. And the producer of the Queen Latifah show called and wanted me to come on the show. And I thought, oh, wow, that's great. Oh, no, I'm scared. (laughs) (laughs) They flew me to New York. And when I got off the plane, there's a limo driver who has a sign with my name on it, which was really cool. (laughs) (laughs) They took me to a beautiful suite right over Central Park. And the next morning, they came and picked me up. Well, I figured there's going to be a little powwow about what we're going to talk about or what we're going to do. And, and I thought, well, at the very least, you know, we're just, she's going to sit at a desk. I'm going to sit in a chair next to her. Like, you know, it's a talk show. Well, turns out this talk show has 400 people in the studio audience. So the audience is in the holding area and they told me to go pick four people out of the holding area. And I said, for what? For your participants. I had, I had never done a stage hypnosis show or had like people, you know, or even cameras, whatever. So I, I did a process and picked four people and then they were sitting in the audience, but I'm backstage and they're putting the mics on and I'm saying, what are we going to be talking about? Oh, she says, oh, you know, you've done this hundreds of times. (laughs) Like, don't spill the beans, right? I had never 
never done this. So um, they said, okay, go, go out on stage. I go out on stage and there's not a desk or a chair. 400 people are applauding. I'm the only person on stage. And the cameramen are making all these signals with their hands. I have no idea what they're doing. Latifa is in the very top row of the audience. And Not so intimidating now, at all. <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. So I, this is the fastest hypnosis ever. I closed my eyes. I'm standing right in the middle of the stage. I closed my eyes. I held my hands like cupped. My, I said, the audience is going to love every word you say. You've got them in the palms of your hands. You're going to be natural and fun. And that was the, I had to either cry or throw up. <laughs> so that little, just that little statement, instead of going to fear and triggering all the fear that I could have had, that did the job. They kept me on that stage for half an hour by myself. And she would ask questions from up there, but then there were four empty chairs on the stage. And I thought, well, I guess my participants are supposed to get in these chairs. <laughs> and they did. And I did a trance thing and I had seen some hypnosis videos for stage shows. So I did some funny things with them. Oh my God. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm curious though about like, you know, for you to, you, you know, tell yourself that for it to, you know, actually work, I'm assume, you know, assuming that you had to have really believe that, you know, as far as like, if you just said those <laughs> words, but so I'm, I'm just curious as far as like, if, you know, sort of the, the blockages that people run into if people, you know, consciously tell themselves they, you know, want something or, or say affirmations, but then those uh, kind of subconscious beliefs um, are sort of uh, sabotaging them. Yeah, you're absolutely correct, Toby. The, the beliefs you have are more powerful than visualizations or affirmations. If you haven't gotten to the core of those beliefs, most of which are hidden from your conscious mind, you're going to keep triggering them. So we were talking about how the neural networks will go to a place in your brain where old emotions or memories or fears are stored. And then when I'm standing on that stage, I could have had the conversation that is, oh my God, I'm going to screw this up. I, I cannot do this. I am going to make a, uh, this is going to be a mess. I'm going to be so, you know, if I did that, my brain immediately searches for all the things I've screwed up or been too scared to, to do or, you know, so you have a choice of choosing what the words are that you use and catching yourself in negative self-talk and then doing something to change it, hopefully changing it with hypnosis so that you get it embedded in your subconscious mind. Absolutely. Well, I'm curious then, you know, we talked about sort of, you know, the food, we talked about substances, what, what other, um, what other things or, or maybe, maybe things that people wouldn't really think of as far as, you know, different conditions or symptoms or, or just things that people want to improve that can be helped with hypnosis. Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating. And hypnotherapists who have been doing this for a while, we see flat out miracles happen. It is so miraculous. So a doctor in the beginning um, was sending me a lot of his patients. And I honestly didn't really know what to do. 
because I was learning really fast and I had been in school for six months, but still a woman comes in with migraines and she has the migraines on Thursday and they last a couple days. And she's had this for over 10 years. And the doctor's like, I don't know what to do. She, we can't you know, get rid of the migraines. So in trance, I asked her to go back to the very first time that she had this migraine, the thing that caused this migraine at the first time. And so she's in relaxed, her eyes are closed. She's in my recliner. And all of a sudden, she stopped breathing and her head was kind of shaking like she was trying to get a breath, but she wouldn't breathe and she was not breathing. And I was like, oh dear. So I, I said, when I touch your shoulder, I'm going to count to three and you will breathe easily staying right in that moment. And I touched her shoulder and went one, two, three, and her mouth opened and she went, oh. I said, stay right there and tell me what's happening said, my husband is strangling me. He's trying to kill me. His hands are on my throat and he's trying to strangle me. So then I took her away from that to just look at it from the outside. So she's no longer inside the body on the chair. And some work we did in resolving that. But after we were done, I said, what day of the week is it? And she said, it's Thursday. And that's when he tried to strangle her. Mm. And she never had another migraine. Never. <laughs> Hmm. But so many things that we just have no idea that we can fix with hypnotherapy, like phantom limb pain. I had a man who had his foot amputated because of a sore from diabetes, and he'd had this pain, phantom limb pain, for the last three years or so, and he goes to a pain clinic, and he takes so many drugs. He said he drinks a fifth of rum and takes his opiates at night so he can just Oof. pass out because they can't help him. So I'd, I had not worked with phantom limb pain before. And I thought, you know, the brain is making a mistake because there's no foot there and there's no pain there. But the brain thinks there is. Maybe part of the healing process is that the brain is ferociously trying to send these signals to the foot. And then when it heals, the signals get sent back to the brain to say, stop. And this was just a hunch. And so I did this with him. I think we did three or four sessions. And by the third session, his phantom limb pain was gone. And by the fourth session, I just did some more work on envisioning the healing. What I did was I had him imagine that foot was healing, that it was real and it was still there. And the sores were gone and the skin was all new and, and everything was just in perfect health and there's no sensations. And then we go back to the brain and we tell the brain, the foot is fine, nothing else is needed, it's completely healed. The brain got the message and his phantom pain went away and it didn't come back. He called me months later and said, still, I have no phantom limb pain. And I've done that with several people who have lost a limb and it works every time. So our brain needs to receive the message that says it's healed. Hmm. And yet, you know, people don't know what to do with phantom limb pain. They live with it and they're tortured. But there was another woman, um, Martha was about 60 years old and she had been catatonic for three years. She was living at her house with her two adult daughters and they took care of her. So they asked me to come there and do some work with her, but nothing moved. She could blink her eyes and um, they could give her little bits of water and she had a feeding tube and stuff. But for three years, nothing had moved. So I go in there and 
I did a little bit of trance stuff, but not much because I don't know that she's even in there. And I described this story to her that was trying to get her to maybe have some sensations in her fingers and her toes. And it was about a little creek with really cool water and she was dipping her toes in and things like that. And I described this whole scenario. And when I was done with that session, her two daughters said, how did you know? That's the place we used to go with her. And the blanket that you said she put on the grass and making little daisy chains with our fingers. How did you? I said, I just described what I saw. Um, and then the next week I worked with Martha's hands and they were clenched really tight. And they had been for three years. Her arm joints didn't move and her fingers didn't move. And I told Martha to imagine Play-Doh. Remember the smell and the feel of Play-Doh when your daughters played with it. And I would rub her fingers and say, this one's blue Play-Doh and this one's yellow Play-Doh and so soft and stuff. And they weren't moving yet. But the next week when I came in, her eyebrows raised up and she had a little smile that she could smile and her fingers were softened. We could move her fingers. So now she could lift a finger for a yes and lift a finger for a no. So now they could communicate with her. This was against all odds that this could even happen. It was, oh, and I kept working with her. It was every day. It was just a miracle. And on the drive home every day, I was just like, I can't believe I've been given this opportunity to do this. That's incredible. Um, I'm curious, like what other, you know, besides hypnosis, I'm curious if you're a fan uh, of any other sort of, you know, treatments that are similar or, um, or if you see kind of, where do you see the future of, of hypnosis going? It's interesting. Um, I was just in a little online um, workshop yesterday. It was about treating trauma. And this guy is brilliant and he has created this process. And there's so many brilliant people in this field now that the processes and the advancements we're making because we are people that like to share our knowledge and we're very generous and very giving because that's the kind of people that kind of attracts. I think that if we can just keep getting people to know that this is out there and this is so much easier to get rid of problems that you have than all of them. I mean, you know, medical things serve a purpose, obviously, but there's so much time and energy and people give up because they think oh, I'm never going to be able to, you know, get rid of my migraines or my back pain. I'm, I'm just going to have back pain forever or they're addicted to opiates because of pain pills. Um, I just think that the amount of really smart, innovative people is going to make this the go-to therapy. You know, that it's, you don't want to sit and talk to your therapist for a year because you're depressed. And one woman that came in to me, she had been going to a therapist for two years because of her depression. And after the third week, she said, I am feeling so good. So good. after all those years in therapy, and now mm. I'm feeling really good. And she kept coming to me for a couple months. But there's so much trauma and so many difficult things. Like one of my clients, um, this is gruesome. His dad shot everyone in the family, including him. He lived and the rest all died. And he was, I think, about 10 years old. So as an adult, he came to me and he said, you know, obviously this is a really difficult thing. But people live with this kind of trauma 
and we did some work on it and had him do all the aspects he needed and maybe four or five sessions was all and he was healed emotionally the memory's still there of course but but it it doesn't have the emotion and the fear and the trauma attached to it anymore so it's just it it is a memory it's there it's all right it's all right i'm alive and now he can create new responses and reactions to you know life's events hmm. it kind of took the the emotional weight away from the memory yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. people need to know that because it is a really cool thing to do. You'll feel better so fast. And especially with my addicts that I work with, um, a lot of them use my program that's online um, to do the addiction work. And they just keep saying, you know, I didn't even have to try to stop drinking. It was weird. Like on the third day, I just, eh, no, I just don't want it. it. just didn't matter. That's ridiculous. It's supposed to be so hard to quit drinking alcohol. Heroin addicts say it's harder to quit alcohol than heroin. But people are, and even my meth client, that very first guy, he just, he just quit. And they came in to my office six months later to say, hey, how you doing? Just thought I'd let you know. Back with my family and my kids and I've been clean and I feel great. And hmm. it's my thing. Wow. Uh, the power of the mind, right? <laughs> no, and well, we all have this power to make these changes. We just need someone to give us a little guidance, I think, you know, to right. know the process. Right. Well, Wendy, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. Um, and I just wanted to kind of see, you know, where you would direct people if people want to learn more about any of your work. You mentioned the online class. Where would, uh, Where should people go? Well, um, thank you for asking. When I first started making um, programs that were recorded, they were on cassette tapes back then. <laughs> oh my God, that was 24 years ago, 25 years. And then I, my business grew really fast, so I had a pretty big staff. And with that staff working for me, I could do a lot of recording. And so I did a lot of research for every subject and, um, and recorded programs. So I have about 400 programs, and they're multi multi-session so if you get one that's like for hypnosis for childbirth you would do about three or four or five different sessions and you know it's a whole program it's in order Um, so it's really cool because if you're a golfer or a public speaker or you have stuff from your past that just won't go away or eating issues whatever they are I've got I've got you covered and they're very reasonably priced so at wendy.com and Wendy is with an I, so W-E-N-D-I. At wendy.com, you'll see all the different programs that are there. And if you don't find what you need, you can send me an email, and I'll let you know if I have it, and it's just not on that website. Uh, but it's been, it's been so astounding to me that I make these programs, and of course, I'm still asking people questions, and I'm guiding them, but I'm not getting their responses back. But it looks like, for the most part, I don't need to talk to you one-on-one about what you're experiencing and it makes the changes and all these different like and all the different elements needed to make it happen and i get the just the greatest letters from people telling me that um like allergies who knew you could get rid of allergies with hypnosis Hmm. who knew nobody knows that you know or that you can um improve your eyesight or like i have one that's for iron man competitors 
because hypnosis for sports is a, you know, that's a slam dunk. <laughs> mm-hmm. I do have one for basketball too. Uh, but it's, it's so easy to get someone's performance faster or stronger or more endurance or whatever they need. And this is a way that people can do it without spending a lot of money. Awesome. Sweet. Well, if you guys enjoyed the show today, um, go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel, um, Roscoe's Wetsuit. Um, and then you can also find audio versions of the podcast at uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. So go ahead and check us out. All right, Wendy, again, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks for, or, thanks for having me, Toby. But what was fun, like just before we got on the air, Toby lives in Boca Raton, and I went to high school and grew up in Boca Raton and went to college there and stuff. So that was kind of fun. Just feels It always feels good when you have a little something in common. But Absolutely. Yeah, so, yeah, so great to get to know you. Thank you so much. Likewise. Yeah. Likewise. All right.